Welcome to Polymathic Being, a place to explore counterintuitive insights across multiple domains. These essays take common topics and explore them from different perspectives and disciplines, and in doing so, come up with unique insights and solutions. As we kick off today, I want to celebrate the continued growth of Polymathic Being. Thanks for being here. I also have an ask. Please follow, like, and share. Follow us on your podcast players and on polymathicbeing.com. Click the like button or submit reviews so others can find us. And please share these essays and recordings with others so that we can continue to grow together. Exegesis, a powerful analytical tool, and why we should use it everywhere. Today's topic highlights the power of an analytical concept called exegesis. It's an amazing tool to help shift perspective and demonstrates how digging a little deeper can illuminate something really interesting and profound that people are largely ignorant of. It's a bit of a deep dive into an esoteric religious topic, but one that highlights the criticality of analysis. Furthermore, if we're successful for a topic like this, we can do it for any topic and thereby challenge our assumptions. To set the stage of why this review is important, we should quickly contextualize the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Whether business, history, innovation, or religion, humans have a bias of interpreting things that happened based on their perspectives, views, culture, and biases, regardless of the actual activity or intent of the original actors. This is called eisegesis and means reading into the situation, which leads to a lot of misunderstanding of why things actually occurred. We see this all the time around actions of the past, such as slavery, colonization, wars, and much more. We grade these actions not on how they'd be considered then, but how we consider it now. Fellow author Colette Greystone, writing Common Sense Isn't Common, recently addressed the problem with eisegesis on a 4th of July topic where she pointed out that history needs to be understood in time and context, and not in how we do it today. Commenting on the thread was a fellow whose response highlights the epitome of eisegesis. Quote, You might not be so sure in your presumptions about the relationship between historical facts and contemporary meaning. End quote. The problem is that it's intellectually weak and unlocks a whole bevy of poor behaviors, namely self-righteousness. It's not thinking critically, and it certainly suffers from cognitive blindness. Contrasting this is a method of systems thinking which directs the observer to consider the original context with the culture, language, intentions, and even biases of the original authors and audience in mind. We call this method exegesis, and it means that you read from the situation, leading to a much better understanding of why things happened and what it means if we need to adjust the course in the future. Today, we'll use an example I wrote almost a decade ago while investigating Christianity. It peels back layers upon layers of built-up assumptions, interpretations, and biases, and unlocks something the vast majority of Christians don't even know about their own Bible. It's a fun treasure hunt where something people hold dear becomes even more insightful and valuable if we avoid reading into it, but instead read from the text. Exegesis is hard, though. It takes a lot of work to immerse ourselves in the perspectives of others, in their shoes, minds, and cultures. It is because it is hard that we know it is valuable. Our example is going to get into some nuance about words. 
But I promise, when we tease it apart, it'll become shockingly simple and much more insightful. It all starts because, in Christianity, the concept of biblical law is lumped to include all of the directions in the Old Testament. It's combined post hoc as a way to create a separation between the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace, a concept known as dispensationalism, just in case you wanted the $5 word. This division results in obfuscation of what the law even was, let alone whether there's an ability to even follow it or not. But what is the law? What did it mean in that day and age? Right off the bat, we see that the term law is missing a lot of context as a distinction emerges all the way back in Genesis 26. Quote, Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, mitzvah, my statutes, hukim, and my laws, Torah. There is substantial confusion, though, in the English translations for what these words refer to and what they mean. This is compounded by Bible translators who rendered different Hebrew words in different ways based on their interpretation and bias. I'll give just two examples of how the simple words we read are much more complex. As in the 1769 edition of the King James Bible, we see that commandments, in what the King James Version captures as commandments, the Hebrew text has words such as mitzvah, tzav, peh, debar, pequid, etc. But sometimes the King James Version also renders those Hebrew words as precept, ordinance, statute, word, law, and decree. The law. Where the King James Version has law, the Hebrew text has words like chak, chok, mishpat, and Torah. But the King James Version translates those Hebrew words even other ways, such as statute, ordinance, decree, commandment, custom, judgment, and more. The same challenge exists with the statutes, judgments, and ordinances. If this apparent willy-nilly swapping of words causes your head to spin, you're in good company. This caused me a lot of confusion in reading the English translations and trying to parse out what is what. It appears, and many believe, that these words are virtually synonymous. This leads some to accuse Jews or Christians that if they want to obey the whole law, then why aren't they out there stoning adulterers, as in Leviticus 20.10? Or, how can they follow Torah when it promotes slavery, Exodus 21? Or, is demeaning to a raped woman, Deuteronomy 22? The problem isn't what the original text says. It is with what we read into it today. In reality, it is much simpler versus trying to reconcile the Hebrew words to the English translation, as we investigated earlier, let's link the English words to the Hebrew. Torah equals law, but is better seen as instructions in being righteous. It includes the historical lessons of the Bible, and it includes the Ten Commandments, or the covenant terms. Mitzvah, those are commandments. Hukim, those are the statutes. And Mishpat, are judgments or ordinances. Now remember back when all of these were mashed together into the same thing as law and or commandments. But understanding how these relate to each other further simplifies the structure. To you listeners, on polymathicbeing.com, this essay has a diagram which shows the interrelationship of these terms. And starting from the top, Torah 
is the overarching concept best understood as instructions. It is derived from the root yara, which is used in the realm of archery, meaning to shoot an arrow in order to hit a mark. This means that Torah is guidance to aim the arrow at the mark. Torah means directions, teaching, instructions, or doctrine. This relates to two other Hebrew words derived from the same root as Torah. The first is the word for teacher, mora. A mora is one who imparts instructions to his or her students. The second important word is parent, or hora. This indicates to us that one of the primary roles for a parent is to teach and instruct the child. Torah literally means instructions in righteousness. As an interesting aside, what we call the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 are technically the Ten Words, Hebrew, Dabar, and that's why the Greek calls them the Decalogue, Deca being ten, Logos equaling words. These are not commandments, or the Hebrew mitzvah, but they are covenant terms. That nuance helps highlight the challenges of a cursory reading and understanding. Continuing on, according to Deuteronomy, the actual commandments, or mitzvah, are further broken down into hukim and mishpatim. Deuteronomy 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes, hukim, and the judgments, mishpatim, which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments, mitzvah, of the Lord your God which I command you. Hukim has the primary meaning of cutting in or engraving in stone, and is, in general, a statute, a prescribed limit or boundary cut in stone, i.e. permanent. The hukim are the specific commandments, such as morality, animal care, the feast days, and sacrificial directions. These are direct orders from God, both positive, do, and negative, do not. Mishpatim, on the other hand, convey the terms of justice, judgment, and ordinance. The primary sense is to exercise the process of government, to decide a case, or to arbitrate a righteous solution to a quarrel. Mishpatim are, in essence, case law. This describes what the right ruling is for those who violate the Hukim. For example, in Exodus 21, we transition right from the covenant terms, which appear to be Hukim, and go straight into the Mishpatim on those terms. We see the simple Hukah, you shall not murder, expanded with practical application and just rulings where murderous intent is delineated from negligence. The difference between Hukim and Mishpatim is critical and often ignored. The first is a command. The second is a consequence of not following the command. So, when people ask why Christians would follow a rule against adultery, but not follow a rule about stoning adulterers, it misses that one is a commandment, or Hukim, and the other is a ruling, or Mishpatim. You aren't commanded to stone adulterers. You are commanded to not be an adulterer. You also can't arbitrarily execute judgment if you don't have the authority. Doing so would cause you to violate the Hukim, do not murder. Now that we've teased out the nuances, we'll find out that what we have are covenant terms, rules, and case law. 
Suddenly, what seems capricious and convoluted shakes out as quite clear and understandable. I've saved an investigation into just how many of the biblical laws we still follow for another time, but hint, it's almost all of those that still apply. But with this context, we can start to address what most people find questionable about these rules. What seems to bother people the most are some of the rulings. In today's society, we bulk at things like what to do in the case of rape, marrying or restitution, and the structures around bond servants or slaves. But two things come into consideration here. First, the Hebrews had no prison. It was either restitution, expulsion, which basically guaranteed you'd be a slave of the next tribe or nation, or capital punishment. Second, the Hebrews were a very tight-knit tribal organization that was closely related. This wasn't a group of strangers. These were extended families. The fact is, in that time and culture, these rules and rulings were incredibly progressive given the tribal infrastructure, community relations, and the risks of other tribes. They were one of the first to have animal rights enshrined into law. They had protections for victims of rape where restitution showed that the woman had value, unlike the cultures around them. The rules around bond servants or slaves even created challenges within American slavery and today's contemporary slavery where slaves aren't treated as well as the Bible directed over 4,000 years ago. Getting the framework right and then stepping back for context suddenly takes a concept that people might believe is convoluted and regressive and shows how interrelated and progressive these were at the time. Exegesis takes something that appears complex and demonstrates it is much simpler. In conclusion, what I found most insightful about this study was just how convoluted eisegesis makes a text when so much is read into it and words are twisted to meet modern agendas. Stepping back, extracting the roots of the words, and then bringing them into context for today helps to illuminate so much that's often just passed over. So how does this help on other topics? Mainly because you see eisegesis being applied to so much of our history. We go back and read and judge Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson as if they were writing today, which can sound regressive. Instead, if you read it as it was then, they were progressive, even revolutionary. We look at slavery as uniquely an American problem without contextualizing that America, along with England, were the first nations to ever eliminate slavery outside their own borders. We look at other cultures, whether contemporary or historical, and interpret their actions through our own experience, cultures, and values, which projects a context that they might not have ever considered. Fundamentally, exegesis helps to get back to the intent and opens up the nuance of a system in ways that we really hadn't thought about. It shows us that we can apply this to religion, philosophy, legal writing, and almost any other topic. It allows us to challenge the preconceptions, challenge the bias, and extract out the value. Exegesis is an amazing tool to help get into what really happened with curiosity. It allows us to investigate with humility and avoid self-righteous interpretations. It enables us to reconceptualize and shift the perspectives to see what it looked like back then. It's something that can be applied historically and contemporarily as we seek to apply the system's perspective to everything and think critically. 
This doesn't mean we are justifying the actions of the past. It means we are prepared to make intelligent changes for the future without throwing everything else away. Thanks for listening to Polymathic Being. We'd love for you to subscribe at polymathicbeing.com where you can read, comment, and share these essays.